could open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. take a moment and pray before we get started. It is true, Lord, not many wise, not many strong are called. We confess our weakness and our folly in so many ways, in the way we think, how we act. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, that this morning, right now, in this holy time, that you would please unfold your word. The unfolding of your word gives light. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. By it, your servant is warned. In keeping it, there is great reward. Father, please help now by the power of the Holy Spirit, the preacher, he is in weakness, and the hearers, Lord, to hear with gladness, with ready minds, wake us from our sleep to pay attention, Lord. We desire to be changed. Help us now, in Christ's name, amen. Well, in the Christian life, one of the things among many that we have been called to is perseverance. It's been granted to us, as Scripture says in another place, to suffer for Christ. It's been granted to us to suffer for Christ. And we've been called to persevere. The race is long. The difficulties are manifold. The temptations are as close as our very own skin. We only have one shot, if you didn't know that. We don't believe in reincarnation. The race is not a repeat. If we're not careful, disillusionment can set in as we face the difficulties ahead. So how we are to persevere is the subject of our text this morning. Let us read it together, and I'm going to illustrate our text in four points. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, I'm going to illustrate this text in four points. First, we're going to look at the motive of perseverance, the motive of perseverance. Secondly, we'll look at the manner of perseverance, the manner. Third, the mandate of our perseverance. And fourthly, the man of perseverance. So the motive, the manner, the mandate, the man. I'm not a Southern Baptist preacher, but that is an alliteration. Motive, manner, mandate, man. So leading up to this point, uh, the apostle had reasoned with the Hebrew Christians regarding their confidence. 
that they should have as they enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He urged them to hold fast to their confession. He warns them that if they go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, then there remains no sacrifice for sin for them. They must leave dead works or die in them. That much is plain. He reminds them that many of them had suffered and struggled, even publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and how in the past they had accepted these things with joy. Don't throw away your confidence, he says. Press on, he says. And to show proof of those who didn't shrink back but have faith and preserve their souls, he gives example after example in Hebrews 11. This is the content of the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, but our text in Hebrews 12 begins with a therefore, to reason from these former things. And so we meet with our first point. We should have first notice the motive of our perseverance. The text says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So first I want you to notice that we have witnesses to the Christian faith. These witnesses are not so much those who are looking down from heaven upon us and taking notes and approving or disproving our works as those who have gone before us and set an example and testify to those things that ought to be done. All of the, all of the examples in the preceding chapter are those, as we covered the last time I was with you, they spoke clearly. And they spoke that faith will carry a believer through any circumstance. Peter makes that plain in 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. These witnesses, these martyrs, as the Greek word has it, testify to the life of faith for you. They testify that we must believe and obey God. They testified that faith risks all things worldly to gain all things heavenly. They testified that faith alone in Christ alone brings you home. They witnessed to these things. So we have witnesses to the life of faith. But also our text says we have a cloud of them. God has not left us with some obscure desert witness or some obscure desert religion. He's left us with a multitude of witnesses. That's what the word cloud signifies, contextually and figuratively. It's a numberless throng that we have to examine. We could just use the words of the Apostle Paul in the previous chapter. He sums up this life of faith of these believers that he picked out for our examples, and he says, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of all the things that God has done through his people in ages past. Like a, like a cloud, it seemed, smaller than a man's hand off in the distance, it grows and grows and grows as God deals with his people throughout time. Paul reasoned that this cloud was so great that we ought to be moved by their examples to do certain things. More on that in just a moment. So we have witnesses, we have a ton of them, and it surrounds us. Now, some of your translations may just say, we have 
a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, my translation uses the word surrounds us. I think it, it captures the idea of what the apostle is trying to say here. This cloud surrounds us. It's not something we simply have as a dusty old book on our shelf, though that's true. It's something we walk in and live in and compete among. We see these witnesses set before us in every page of Scripture. Not only this, being surrounded by this cloud of witnesses alludes to this idea that Paul's getting to later in our text about the uh, agon is the Greek word. You can hear the word agony there. Agon, the, the competition, the race, the fight. And Paul doesn't exclude himself from these exhortations. He says these are examples for us. Paul drew himself upon these examples of faith. This great cloud of witnesses surrounded him as well. And just because he was an apostle doesn't mean he didn't need encouragement. You know, we may need to think about that with our own pastors. These are men and men at best. And the apostle Paul needed encouragement from the great cloud of witnesses. And our pastors do as well. Well, I want, to, I want to draw some observations just from this brief analysis of this portion of our text. I want you to observe, number one, understanding church history is a divine mandate. It is a divine mandate. Here in our text and many other places in the Bible, we have a clarion call, not just a cursory study, but a clarion call to have a robust understanding of the works of God in the lives of those in ages past. We're historically ignorant a lot of the times. A lot of new Christians are, but even those who are down the road are historically ignorant of the works of God in ages past. So if Christian biography is not a, in heavy rotation in your reading, uh, you're missing a major source of encouragement in the Christian life. So I think you need to, to rotate those things in to your Bible reading, and proof is found here. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So first kind of observation, understanding church history is a divine mandate. God commands us to do that. Two, church history proves the triumph of God over Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that truth probably every day and multiple times a day. Church history is not only a record of Christ, it is a record of the Antichrist as well. We must be aware of his schemes. The kingdom of God wins, of course, and we can never be reminded of that too often. But through the agency of church history, we better know our enemy, and we can rejoice at his downfall time and time again. The stories of faith in Hebrews 11 and those recorded even post-cross are records of the victory of God in his church. The victory of God through faith over Satan and his schemes. And we need to be reminded of those things very often. But third observation, faith speaks even when we are long gone. Faith speaks even when we are long gone. Through faith, though you are dead, you can speak. And you can speak to your children. You can speak to your grandchildren. You can speak to many 
many future generations. Through faith, though you are dead, you can still speak. And this is proof. Paul draws on those who have gone before us. So the motive of perseverance, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us look on those men and women of faith as our examples. But second, notice the manner of perseverance. What are we to do? The manner of our perseverance says two things. We are to lay aside every weight and we are to lay aside the sin which clings so closely to us. Now, just as our cloud of witnesses did, so we must do. We also, Paul says, don't miss that word, he graciously includes himself in this company of those who have been called to endurance. What was not needful for the race, Paul is saying in summary, must be laid aside. The saints of old had a consideration of what would slow them down. We must also. But what does he mean by laying aside every weight? What does that mean? I believe Paul is speaking of the things that in and of themselves are not sinful. Okay, mark that. These are things Paul is referencing in your life that are not necessarily sinful things. They are truly innocent things. We know this because he mentions them, look at the text, alongside the sin which so closely clings to us. He's making a category distinction here. Categorically, weights in this analogy that Paul is using are those things that are external to us and have great influence on us and hinder our race. They are innocent, but they are ultimately impediments. In keeping with the illusion of Olympic competition, the, this agon, where we get that word agony, a runner would strip himself of everything that would hinder him from running the race to win. I think old Jason Watts would know that more than anybody in this room. These things he strips himself of are not sinful in and of themselves, but prove to be unwise for the journey. Let me say that again. The things the runner strips himself of are not sinful in and of themselves, but they prove to be unwise for the journey. It was an act of self-denial, considering what that runner had been called to do. The consideration of spiritual impediments takes spiritual discipline. It takes sensitivity to the Spirit's leading, and it takes spiritual wisdom, a balancing, a weighing of things. Now, speaking of self-denial gets many into the territory of legalism. Many fall into this checklist mentality, and sadly, many begin to impose their standards onto others and begin to judge others by them. But we cannot forsake just pausing for a minute and asking hard questions of ourselves for fear of overcorrection. So I'll just throw some words out there. This is a, a list. I'll start the list. You finish it. These things are not inherently sinful, but I want you to just pause for a minute, take a spiritual checklist, wisely think about these things in your life, and are they unwise for the journey? Only you can answer this. 
that streaming TV service, that music artist or genre, that video game, that hobby, those things that you collect and spend a ton of money on, that friend, those books, that social media app, that job. Now categorically, if we were to take an inventory of those things, we would have to say that they are not sinful in and of themselves. But we have to challenge the drawing of our affections even for those things that are indifferent in our life. Are they wise for the journey? Are you running at a dead sprint pace? A few observations here. And this is just a bottom line observation that we have to wrestle with in the Christian life. Whatever does not help hinders. That's a bottom line observation about the things in our life. I'm so surprised by so many people who download so many apps on their phone so thoughtlessly. Just because it's good doesn't mean it's best. Whatever does not help hinders. As innocent as it may be, it may hinder our progress to heaven. We only come to know this, though, and most people who are the most opinionated about the things they want to keep in their life are the ones who are standing still. We only come to know the weight of those things in our life by running. We only come to know the weight of those things that hinder us by running. Stand still, and you can argue till you're blue in the face about not being hindered in the Christian life. I could have this brother or sister. It doesn't hinder me and the man's standing still. But if you run, you will find out very quickly what is weighing you down. Calvin says this, we are already ourselves more tardy than we ought to be just by nature. So no other causes of delay should be added. This is a wartime mentality we should have. Whatever does not help hinders. And this is cause for deep consideration of the mundane things of our life. We cannot overlook those things. So bottom line observation number one, whatever help, whatever does not help hinders. Observation two here is again a bottom line observation. The only way naturally non-sinful things, Netflix, Facebook, name it, the only way naturally non-sinful things in this world become weighty to us in our race is when our affections are set upon them, when they have a hold in our heart. If anything in this life is above Christ, it is a weight to your race. That's a fixed principle. If anything is above Christ, it is a weight. I think we're just surprised at how many things in our life are above him, if we were to be honest. Why do all these things weigh so much? Well, how do you know that something in your life is above Christ? What's a, what's a way that you can tell that something that's indifferent is above Christ in your heart and has a root in your heart? I guess you could ask yourself this question, can you give it up? with joy. Most of the things that are idols in our life, we fight tooth and nail to keep. 
and we get really angry and kind of uh, pout and moan as adults do in their own way about the things that God may call us to give up to run the race. Anything that has a root in your heart above Christ, you can tell if it's an idol if you cannot give it up with joy. So how do we lay these things aside? How do we lay the naturally non-sinful things aside? In other words, how do we train ourselves for the race? Well, first off, I think we always have to be willing to joyfully let go of the things that God calls us to give up. We have to be ready to let go of those things. Now, that assumes several things. That assumes we're in constant communion with the Lord regarding our walk in this world. We often lose sight of how short our lives are and how much things take up our time and thus take away our time from running hard after Christ. We don't even weigh those things. But in constant communion with the Lord, we can be in constant watch for those things that are creeping into our lives that aren't necessarily sinful but are time wasters. Studies show this, that the amount of time spent on Facebook or Instagram is five times more than illicit websites. We're fighting against an illicit industry when people spend five times more time on a seemingly innocent app. Nearly 80 minutes a day on social media is the average usage. The average social media user will spend nearly a year of their life on Instagram. Do you want to spend a year of your life on Instagram? Think about this. Three hours a day is the average TV time. That's an astonishing nine years of your life by the time you lay your head down and meet Jesus. Nearly a decade of our lives is wasted watching TV, binge watching on Netflix where you have to zoom through a season of 24 episodes in two days probably amplifies that number way more. Satan doesn't have to get us hooked on the illicit, brothers and sisters. He just has to waste our time. So when we discover these things that are hindering our race, we have to kill those affections. We have to kill the affections we have for the things that hinder our race. If the Lord has our heart here, he has every part. He has every part of us if he has the heart. So we have to be willing to joyfully give up those things that God calls us to give up. We also have to cultivate a heavenly appetite. Many, if not all, of our struggles in letting the things of the world go come from a real dullness of our appetite for heavenly things. To put it bluntly, we eat from the trough of the world way too much. We eat garbage. Letting things go from the world becomes harder and harder the more embedded in them you become. Sin will take you further than you want to go, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. Remember that. It'll keep you further, it'll take you further, and it'll keep you longer. Spend more time with Christ, and Christ will become sweeter to you. Right? But third, we, all, we have to realize that some things are in our life for a season. How do we let these naturally non-sinful things go? We have to realize that some things are in our life for a season. And when that season is up, just let it go. Let it go. But also we're called to lay aside the sin 
that so easily clings to us. So if this previous category of laying aside every weight seems, ooh, that's tricky. How do I handle that? This one becomes even trickier. It's tricky because it's us we're dealing with now. Not us as in external influences, but us as in our sinful flesh. Paul's referring to the battle within. Weights are battles without. Here, the sin that clings so closely to us is the old self. You can reference Ephesians 4.22 there. This battle within. Paul's not referring to sins particularly, but the sin nature, the inclinations, the leanings, the swayings, the influences of the flesh. Elsewhere in Romans 7, Paul calls this principle uh, a law in our members. It's a fixed principle of our existence that we're going to drag around this body of death until we die. It's always waging war. If we pick up and leave an old life, guess what follows us? The flesh. You can't run from your heart. It has access to all of us. Every faculty is swayed under its influence. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your inclinations. Strip away everything outwardly in your run, in your race, and you still have one great weight remaining, your flesh. And we must give it no quarter. To lay aside the sinful flesh wholly, We have to resolve to quit complaining about it and make war. You have to make war against the flesh. We must kill every sin in particular. This is the crucifixion of the flesh, beloved. This is universal crucifixion of the flesh. Every sin, big and small, powerful and pesky. You know, little seeds grow into great trees, right? Against all of them, we must wage equal war. Paul admonishes us in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Make war. Quit complaining. Put it to death. Well, as we balance out these weights and the, the sin that clings so closely, we, we become kind of like drunk peasants. We fall off the donkey on one side of legalism. We fall off the donkey on the other side of lawlessness. Balance in our race is good ground. So observation number one, think about this. As we're, as we're trying to balance and run the race, we fall off on legalism on one side many times, lawlessness on the other many times so first observation back off your brother back off your brother you may have certain house rules that are your house rules but they're not another man's house rules you may esteem one thing one way and a christian another christian may esteem another thing another way that's romans 14 god alone is lord of the conscience not you. And he's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. There's only one lawgiver and judge, James says, who is able to save and destroy. 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? So as we balance out these weights in our life and we're trying to run the race and you see a, a brother fighting against these things and you look in his life and you go, well, those things aren't naturally sinful, but, you know, I really need to talk to him about that. You have to be very, very careful there. You're going to be stepping into legalistic territory very, very fast. God alone is Lord of the conscience, not you. So many times we see someone uh, steering it into the ditch, and we muscle up and we suggest all these strictures in their lives that the Lord simply does not command. We overcorrect, we yank the steering wheel, and we put the proverbial ox in the ditch of legalism. We try, as the Galatians did and as uh, Peter himself did, we try to perfect by the flesh what was begun by the Spirit. Go read Galatians 3 on that point. We try to perfect by the flesh what God began by the Spirit. This was the sin of Peter among the Galatians. So observation number one, back off your brother. But observation number two, beware of yourself. Beware of yourself. Anyone who claims Christian liberty and practices sin or cherishes any sinful lust perverts the gospel perverts the gospel to their own destruction. Listen to Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So back off your brother, beware of yourself, but also be an example and an encouragement in the race. No one can argue with a life that radiates Christ. No one can argue with that. Run hard, radiate Christ, and those who have impediments in their life will be challenged to leave them behind. Don't go picking through your brother's medicine cabinet, okay? Back off your brother, beware of yourself, but be an example and an encouragement in the race. So we've looked at the motive of perseverance, the mandate of perseverance, I'm sorry, the manner. We're going to look now at the mandate. Motive, manner, now the mandate of our perseverance. Our text says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the Christian mandate to run. And you see this motif in Paul in a lot of other places. Put off these things, put on these things. He never says, put off something without putting on something. Putting off things is legalism. You could strip yourself down to bear nothing and still be unholy. You have to put on. You have to run the race. We have to lay aside things, but we have to also run. Now, this word run is, is powerful. It's the word agona. Agona. He's telling us to agonize, to, to wage war, to have a conflict, to have a, a strife, a work, a toil. Owen says this, uh, it's you, this word is used for anything, work or exercise, about which there is a striving and contending unto the utmost of a man's abilities, such as used when men contend for mastery and victory in the Olympic Games. And so it is applied unto all earnest spiritual endeavors in any kind. 
our race, our run, our life of faith is agony. It is a conflict. It is a competition. It is striving, working, toiling. This means some very obvious things for us. This is difficult. This is hard. This is hard. Contending with all our might, Owen says, must be in it, without which all expectation of success in a race for mastery is vain and foolish. If you don't contend with all your might, then competing for mastery in this is is foolish. Why even be in the race? We must be, as Ephesians 6.10 says, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is difficult, and we have to admit that. But also, this, re- this race requires skill. We run a calculated race. Now, I don't know about marathon running because I've never done it, as you can tell. Um, but I'm sure Jason could probably comment on this. You pace out your time. You know exactly how long you're running. You, you pace it out. It's a calculated run. He doesn't get out there and just flail his arms, say, I'm going to finish whatever I finish. He's pushing, calculating. This is not a short sprint for us. This is a long-distance run. Start out fast and hard, and halfway through, what happens? You're spent, and you finish, and the finish line ends up looking 10 times further away than it did before. Start out too slow, and you're hustling to play catch-up, wondering why everybody around you is so far ahead. So this requires skill. It's a calculated race, and all who enter this race must hold out until the end. There are no prizes for the one who does not finish. Think about that. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run. Run that you may obtain it. So much for participation awards. Now we can have that talk after the sermon. I'm not going to go there too much. But think about it. Congratulations, last place. Congratulations, you disqualified. Here's your participation award. Round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Well, the older I get in Christ the more profoundly I feel the words of the Apostle Paul. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I used to think of those words of the young man in Christ and think, yeah, so what, Paul? But as you get down the road and things begin to ache, you're like, oh, my goodness, am I going to make it? Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Only then will we receive the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award us on that day. We must finish, beloved. We must finish. We're to run this race, Paul says, with endurance. Now, some of your translations say patience or patient endurance. Having entered this race that's described as toil and conflict, we have need for patient endurance. 
in view of present difficulties, we bear out a love and a submissiveness to God and patiently endure the race. In view of future promises, we're to wait with expectation and hope. This is the race of endurance. Persistent, patient progress. Persistent, patient progress. We must let patience have its perfect work in all things. I was talking to a young believer recently. She's uh, about a year old in Christ. She's new to the Reformed faith, and you know that cage stage and all of the things that are happening in that young brain. And you could tell just the utter anxiety in her face over what to do about all the things she reads on the Internet. What do I study? What do I need to know? She wanted to defend the whole the whole of Christianity on the internet, and she was just so busy-minded about everything. And I remember telling her, you know, you can't, you can't do that as a new believer. You have to run a persistent and patient race. Plant yourself in a church and come talk to me 10 years from now, okay? This race in the Christian life is not springing up overnight. This is a slow, persistent, hard race, And it gave her some hope there because she was very busy-minded about the things she needed to believe. And I I thought that that was helpful for her to understand that this is a persistent race. This is a patient progress for us. But this race is also set before us. Look at the text there. We are to run the race that is set before us. Now, there are no hidden agendas in this race. Everything about this race has been set before you by Christ. Everything has been set before you by Christ. He's designed the race. He's paved the course. He's laid out the reward. All the terms of the race have been set before you before you ever began. There's been no deception on his part with what is required. You've been called to crucify yourself. That's part of the race this was the call of the gospel beloved when you believed that's the entry point into the race it will cost you everything listen to Jesus what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's the terms of the race. It's the crucifixion of self. If we meet with difficulty, and we will, and we are, we have no excuse for our complaints. His terms have been clear. Is not that what you chose? Right? If we meet with difficulty, we have no excuse for our complaints. His terms are clear. Did we not choose this? We did. So, observation. The fact that he has set this race before us, I think, gives us consolation in a time of trial. 
One of the greatest things we face in a trial is the uncertainty of why and the uncertainty of how long it will last. I don't know about you, but there's been many times when I felt like I was suffering and just needed to be able to put my hands on something to fix it, to get it over with, something to grasp, something to, something to punch, something to fight to conquer the suffering I was experiencing. It seemed to be coming out of nowhere. When we suffer as Christians, we know, we know that this has been marked out for us. I may suffer many other things in this world and suffer for sin, but when I suffer as a Christian, we know that that has been marked out for us. We have to simply remind ourselves of the case. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 9. I do not run aimlessly. I'm not flailing my arms in the race. I do not box as one beating the air. He knew the path marked out for him, and we know ours. Knowing what we've been called to give in service to Christ in the race gives us encouragement to keep running. Again, his terms are clear. The fact that he set this race before us, we know the things we're going to face. That gives us encouragement and consolation when we face them. The Lord knew these things. He designed them for us. Second observation here. The gospel is an invitation for nothing short of the death of self. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? forfeits its soul the gospel is an invitation for nothing short of the death of self well we've seen the motive of our perseverance we've seen the manner of our perseverance we've seen the mandate of our perseverance what about the man the man of perseverance so we come now to our second verse and the final point now up to this point we've, we've been given many examples of the faith They've been set before us as um, examples, but now we have what I would say is the object of our faith, the one who's standing at the end, at the finish line. And those set before us, they were a cloud of witnesses to the life of faith. But we have, uh, we have some imminent examples there in the Old Testament, but here we have the author of our faith. Those were examples, but now we've come to the author. We have the one who stands at the end of the course, the one who alone we must look, to, to whom alone we must look. And that's what Paul says. In this race, in this agona, in this toil, we have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Holy Spirit has to turn our eyes away from self completely. The Holy Spirit has to turn our eyes away from self completely and turn them on to Christ. We have to look to Christ. New birth enables us to do this. To finish the race, we have to keep looking to Christ. This is the life of faith. Looking has this idea of trust by faith, hope, expectation. This goes far beyond 
a bare intellectualism. When the saints of old left their homeland, they were looking for a heavenly country. Just as those who were in the wilderness and were bitten by the serpent looked to the bronze serpent, lifted up on the pole, so we have to look to Christ. Looking to Christ is looking in faith and receiving into our hearts what he has done. You cannot begin the race but by doing that, and you surely will not finish the race but by doing that. Looking also means that you cannot look at anything else. I thought of uh, those freakish-looking pugs with the weird eyes that look east and west at the same time. I'm sorry for any of you pug owners, not for the dog, but for you. Um, It's just a weird-looking animal. Um, The dog's completely lost. He probably can't see anything in front of him. He's looking this way and this way at the same time and breathing really weird. Uh, Pugs can't look to Christ. Their eyes are crooked. Um, Faith has a singular vision about it. You can't look at anything else in the race. It looks to nothing else, beloved. Spurgeon says this, The Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ that saves thee, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and the finisher of thy faith. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And he alone. It's been granted to us to believe, Philippians 1.29. And what's begun in us, he will bring to completion, Philippians 1.6. The grace you have to run is from him. The strength you have to run is from him. The accomplishment of the race is from him. Who is it that overcomes the world, John asks, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Through his spirit, he is working in us to affect that change. Jesus makes it very plain. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We have to look to Christ As we look to Christ, we look on what supported Christ in his just unparalleled suffering as an example for our encouragement. The text says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. His joy was the glory of God. It was the accomplishment of all that God had called him to do. To take on a body, to live obediently, to suffer, to die, to redeem a people, to rise again. Ultimately, his life was a life 
fully aimed at the eternal glory of God. If the glory of God is the chief motivator of Christ, it must be for us also. We must do all things to the glory of God. This overriding joy allowed him to endure the cross, despising its shame. Joy and hope in God produces endurance. Joy and hope in God produces endurance. Think about it. It was a lingering death, lingering pain, lingering cruelty, mockery, shame. And in the face of all these, he endured to the end. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Simple principle here is no cross, no crown. You've heard it. No cross, no crown. His sufferings were only a precursor to the glory that awaited him. Romans 8.18, for I, brothers and sisters, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Well, beloved, consider the motive of perseverance. We have a great cloud of witnesses to the life of faith. Consider them and be wise. Consider the manner of our perseverance. Lay aside everything that hinders and be killing sin. Consider the mandate. We have to run with endurance the race that's marked out for us by God. And finally, consider the man of perseverance. Christ is before us as the author, perfecter, and exemplar of our faith. Let me just say this. God knows you're weary. But keep running. God knows you feel like the world is crushing in on you. Keep running. Okay? You feel the enticement of sinners around you. Keep running. God knows you have trouble in your marriage. Keep running. God knows you've lost a loved one. Keep running. Keep running. God knows you miss them. Keep running. God knows you see those around you lavishing in the world's goods. They have no struggles. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Keep running. Lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet and look to Christ. Fix your eyes on him and keep running. If we suffer with him, beloved, we may also be glorified with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, my prayer is simple. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ to keep running. We ask these things in his name. Amen.